There are a lot of sayings that people often confuse as literally being found word for word in the Bible. Some of those sayings are things like cleanliness is next to godliness, or God helps those who help themselves, or God will never give you more than you can handle. And while there may be some truth in those statements, you will not find them word for word in the Bible. You know, another one of those statements is that money can't buy happiness. Now, sometimes when people say that, I joke a little bit and say, well, money can buy ice cream, and that makes me incredibly happy. But the older we get, the more that we understand the truth of that sentiment, and that money can't buy us happiness. But what if it can? What if money can buy us happiness? Elizabeth Dunn, a psychology professor at the University of British Columbia, and Harvard Business School marketing professor Michael Norton are the co-authors of Happy Money, The Science of Happier Spending. And according to their book, money can buy happiness if you're spending it right. And by right, they mean spending it on others, not on yourself. See, according to their research, much of what drives happiness is not the money itself so much as the connection with others or an experience that spending can generate. Now, author Sam Keen wrote in The Atlantic five years ago that we've long known that there's a clear, consistent link between generosity and happiness. Surveys done around the world of many different societies have found that giving produces high levels of satisfaction and well-being in the givers. So basically, science is learning that we are actually hardwired and created to be generous, that we experience a little jolt of dopamine or pleasure when we spend money on others, regardless of the amount of that money. You see, our creator wired us for generosity. So money can make you happy when it is spent on others or for others. Being generous can make us happy. Being generous can bring us joy. You know, one person who wouldn't be surprised by this research at all? The Apostle Paul. In fact, I can almost hear Paul giving a hard eye roll to this research and saying, no, duh, I wrote about this back in 55. Not 1955, literally 55. Paul was incredibly passionate about helping new believers learn the ways of Jesus. Paul was so transformed by the love of Christ, so changed by the grace of God, that he devoted himself fully to helping others live this life and being transformed by Christ as well. Helping them to grab hold of the life which is worth living. And he spent a good deal of his writings, which is a lot of our New Testament in the Bible, talking about giving and generosity and stewardship. Now, why would Paul do that? Because one of the critiques we so often hear about the church is that we're always talking about money. And to be sure, there are some pastors who uh, abuse this and who are very self-centered in their teachings on this matter. But Paul's desire, and our desire, is for people to experience the abundant life that God dreams for us and to experience life-giving relationships with Christ and with each other and with money. 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 contain the most complete teachings in the Bible on generosity. 
Now, if you know anything about the church in Corinth, it might seem a bit strange for Paul to write to them in this letter where we find these clear guidelines on generosity. It might seem to make more sense for Paul to write to uh, maybe one of the more mature congregations in Philippi or Ephesus. And as the kids say today, Corinth was really a hot mess. They had a lot of issues, and it hardly seemed ready to be receiving a theology of stewardship about taking care of what you have. But that is because generosity and stewardship isn't just for the spiritually mature. Now, we think, to tend, uh, we think about stewardship and generosity as something that God calls us to when we maybe have it all together. But that's not how Paul thinks about generosity. Generosity is for everyone. Generosity is a gift from a loving God to us. And Paul wants us all to experience the blessing of the grace that is generosity. And he urges the church in Corinth to step into God's grace in this way. Let's read and walk together through some of Paul's instructions and words on generosity as found in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He has written this letter to the believers there in Corinth, um, and it's a follow-up. And part of this lengthy letter starts with this story about another group of believers in the churches in Macedonia. Now, friends, I want to report on the surprising and generous ways in which God is working in the churches in Macedonia province. Fierce troubles came down on the people of those churches, pushing them to the very limit. The trial exposed their true colors. They were incredibly happy, though desperately poor. The churches in the Macedonia province were suffering. Persecution was pervasive in the early church, and there were also lots of points of conflict in the churches as they started to figure out this new way of life. And the poverty of the Macedonian Christians was probably a part of the poverty in that region, which had suffered badly under the Romans. But add persecution to the mix, and Christians were probably among the lowest, if not the lowest, social class. Yet Paul was really clear here that even though desperately poor, they were incredibly happy, as evident in their generosity. The pressure triggered something totally unexpected, Paul writes, an outpouring of pure and generous gifts. I was there, and I saw it for myself. They gave offerings of whatever they could, far more than they could afford, pleading for the privilege of helping out in the relief of poor Christians. This was totally spontaneous, entirely their own idea, and caught us completely off guard. Paul dedicated about five years of his ministry to collect money for the Gentiles or the non-Jewish believers in order to help alleviate suffering in Jerusalem among the Jesus uh, Jewish followers. And the G- Jewish collection, or the Jewish offering, was something that Paul invited Gentiles to be a part of as an expression of the transformation that had taken place in their lives as followers of Jesus. But it appears in our text that Paul had not given that word to the Macedonian churches, maybe because he knew of their situation. But they heard about it. And they wanted to be a part of it. Paul says they pleaded, they begged for the privilege of helping out in relief of poor Christians. Why? Why? Why would this group, desperately poor believers, give more than they could afford to people they didn't know? 
Well, Paul writes, what explains it was that they had first given themselves unreservedly to God and to us. The other giving simply flowed out of the purposes of God working in their lives. Paul says that their generosity was a result of God at work in their lives. Their joy at giving, their burden for helping out despite their circumstances, despite their poverty, despite their persecution, was the overflow of the goodness and the abundance of blessings of God in their lives. They weren't focused on what they didn't have. They were focused on what they did have, and that was God. And God was enough. Now, Paul, after giving what he hopes is a really inspirational story about another group of believers, turns in his writing to the Corinthian believers. Now, it's a bit of a risk, kind of like bragging about one child to motivate the other child. And sometimes that works, and sometimes it makes things worse. So Paul starts out in the next part with some genuine compliments about the good work the Corinthians have been doing, and then a challenge for them to remember the joys of giving. That's what prompted us to ask Titus to bring the relief offering to your attention so that what was so well begun could be finished up. You do so well in so many things. You trust God. You're articulate. You're insightful. You're passionate. You love us. Now do your best in this too. I'm not trying to order you around against your will. But by bringing in the Macedonians' enthusiasm as a stimulus to your love, I am hoping to bring the best out of you. You are familiar with the generosity of our Master, Jesus Christ. Rich as he was, he gave it all away for us. In one stroke, he became poor and we became rich. So, here's what I think. The best thing you can do right now is to finish what you started last year. And not let those good intentions grow stale. Your heart's been in the right place all along. You've got what it takes to finish it up, so go to it. Once the commitment is clear, you do what you can, not what you can't. The heart regulates the hands. Now, while Paul shared the story of the Macedonians to inspire, they were not the standard for giving. Paul says that the only standard for giving is the love of Jesus Christ, who gave it all away for us. Why did the Macedonians give? Because God's grace enabled their abundant joy and extreme poverty to overflow into a wealth of generosity during a really difficult time. And why should the Corinthians give? And why should we give? Because God's grace enables our abundant joy and all of our resources, whatever that might be for each of us, to overflow with a wealth of generosity to and for others. Because generosity invites us to care for one another, to build and to protect and to grow community. Because generosity is a win-win. While working as a journalist in Chicago for the Chicago Tribune in 2005, author Lee Strobel was assigned to report on the struggles of an impoverished inner-city family during the weeks leading up to Christmas. Strobel was a devout atheist at the time, but would later become a believer and author of many best-selling books, including The Case for Christ. But in 2005, Strobel had not come to believe yet and was simply a student of the human story. 
In December 2005, Strobel shared in a Tribune story the story of the Delgados, 60-year-old Perfecta and her granddaughters Lydia and, Je and Jenny. They had been burned out of their roach-infested tenement and were now living in a really tiny two-room apartment on the west side. There was no furniture, no rugs, nothing on the walls, only a small kitchen table and one handful of rice. That's it. They were virtually devoid of all possessions. In fact, 11-year-old Lydia and 13-year-old Jenny owned only one short-sleeved dress apiece and had one thin gray sweater between them. And when they would walk the half mile to school through the biting cold, Lydia would wear that sweater for part of the walk, and then she'd give it to her shivering sister to wear the rest of the way. But despite their poverty and the painful arthritis that kept Perfecta from working, she still talked confidently about her faith in Jesus. She was convinced that he had not abandoned them. There was no despair or self-pity in her home. Instead, there was a gentle feeling of hope and peace. Strobel completed his article, and then he moved on to more high-profile assignments. But when Christmas Eve arrived, he found his thoughts drifting back to Perfecta and the Delgado girls and their unflinching belief in God's providence. And he writes this, I continue to wrestle with the irony of the situation. Here was a family that had nothing but faith and yet seemed happy, while I had everything I needed materially but lacked faith, and inside I felt as empty and barren as their apartment. In the middle of a slow news day, Strobel decided to pay a visit to the Delgados, and when he arrived, he was amazed by what he found there. Readers of his article in the Tribune had responded to the family's needs in overwhelming fashion. They filled the small apartment with donations. Once inside, Strobel encountered new furniture and appliances and rugs and a large Christmas tree and warm winter clothes and bags of food. And the readers had also given generous amounts of cash. But it wasn't the gifts that shocked Strobel an atheist in the middle of Christmas generosity. It was the family's response to those gifts. And this is what he wrote. As surprised as I was by this outpouring, I was even more astonished by what my visit was interrupting. Perfecta and her granddaughters were getting ready to give away much of their newfound wealth. When I asked Perfecta why, she replied in halting English, our neighbors are still in need. We cannot have plenty while they have nothing. This is what Jesus would want us to do. That blew me away, he wrote. If I had been in their position at that time in my life, I would have been hoarding everything. I asked Perfecta what she thought about the generosity of the people who had sent all of these goodies, and again, her response amazed me. This is wonderful. This is very good, she said, gesturing toward all the donations. We did nothing to deserve this. It is a gift from God. But, she added, it's not his greatest gift. No, we celebrate that tomorrow. That is Jesus. To her, the child in the manger was the undeserved gift that meant everything, more than material possessions, more than comfort, more than security. And in that moment, something inside of Lee wanted desperately to know this Jesus, because in a sense, he saw Jesus in Perfecta and her granddaughters. They had, he writes, peace despite poverty while I had anxiety despite plenty. 
They knew the joy of generosity, while I only knew the loneliness of ambition. They looked heavenward for hope, while I only looked out for myself. They experienced the wonder of the spiritual, while I was shackled to the shallowness of the material. And something made me long for what they had, or more accurately, for the one they knew. The generosity of the Delgados in their extreme poverty, like the Macedonians, overflowed from the grace of God and the generosity of Jesus Christ in their lives. They first gave themselves unreservedly to God, and everything else was an outpouring and overflowing of God at work. Paul's words to the Corinthian believers and to us today about money is this. Generosity is not about what God wants from us. Generosity is about what God wants for us. It is to accept the invitation from a loving God to experience the joy of giving, the joy of receiving and managing and sharing God's blessings, the joy of not being owned by what we own, the joy of joining God and each other in being Christ's love and hope in our community, and in our world, through living generous lives. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the words of encouragement from Paul's letter to us, from the story of people of faith like the Delgados, who encourage us and remind us of what a loving God you are. That the things that you invite us to are things that will give us the abundant life you dream for us. And being generous is part of that. God, it is so confusing sometimes with money. And we hear mixed messages all around us and even within us about how money can fix things. But God, you speak truth into our lives. That that is not the answer, but that you are. And by our willingness to be generous, to let go of that and let you bless others and be a part of that, God, we are experiencing the freedom that you call us to. And so we say thank you. We say thank you for loving us in this way, for challenging us in ways, drawing us out from things that we've had our faith in to faith in you and you alone, knowing that that is the surest way to live our lives and the best way to experience joy. We pray these things in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.